this morning, we are sort of hitting a milestone in finishing up a section of Scripture that's been really dense with some amazing truths. So what we're doing as a time, as, as an expression of worship, is sort of recounting what God has shown us in these last couple of months from various family, church family members. So during these first, during our time of song here at, before the sermon, uh, three folks are going to be sharing brief testimonies about some things that God has shown them. And um, just to let you know, they will be brief. I, I told them it's going to be two minutes, and that's not two missionary minutes, but two real legitimate minutes. And in fact, this thing becomes electrified and shocks after two minutes. It's, we're going to start a stopwatch here in a minute. Actually, we're not. It's not going to be that rigid, but uh, they'll be brief, and then we'll continue on in song. So you can just have them be seated after your next uh, song, and then we'll move. We'll do this a couple times, and then we'll move right into our time of preaching. Chuck, you're up first, bro. Thanks. Yeah, I was encouraged by Ben's email this week to, to you know, consider testimony being an act of worship and I consider it a privilege to stand before the Lord and his people and share who the Lord is uh, in my life and you know I, I, I always count a privilege anytime to be able to clearly communicate who God is but you know life is such a personal thing and all of the events come at us differently and so we all approach it differently but what an amazing thing is that we have a God who came and walked as a man. And so some of the, the notes that I uh, shared with Ben is just the, the issue that what helps me walk every day is knowing that I have a father who sent his son to walk. And he, he, is, a, he is proven to be a faithful examine, to be an image barrier for me to discipline my character to be more like Christ. It's not just this false facade of goal in life to go be. I mean, my father commands me to be holy for I'm holy. And when I hear that statement on the book and, you know, just on the front of it, it sounds like an unlofty goal. It sounds like an, uh, an expectation for those who are able to, uh, uh, you know, do something well beyond what I can do in my own flesh. Because I know in my flesh and in my life experience, there's nothing holy about Chuck. And there's been many times in my life where I carried out purpose to glorify the Lord in obedience. And it was a perverted obedience because it wasn't looking for the glory of the Father. So with the Son walking in as man, he his life was focused on glorifying the Father. And that, and that gives me great hope. And I have found in my life, if I can just set on that, know that I was created to glorify the Father. And that's the only expectation. That's a good thing. And that's a, that's a very strengthening thing in, in the culture that I walk in every day with high expectation and, and uh, unfair expectation of, of throughput for what I can deliver. But yet, I have a a father who says, be holy, for I am holy. And what does that look like? It's just, it's just glorifying the father. It's not carrying out 10 great new works that I wasn't able to accomplish last year. It's, it's walking and being good 
that the Father is glorified and honored in this moment. And, and that's kind of what I've seen is, and I've been reminded in Hebrews is it's a moment, it's a heart, it's a who is God and what is he doing in his kingdom right now and where has he called you to display that glory in the simple things of life. To have the opportunity to share publicly in worship is always a privilege. Um, and I hope y'all are there this morning to know that that's what we're doing. We're, we're sharing publicly in worship, and that is a privilege that comes from God. When, when being asked if, if someone would, if, if some of the guys would like to get, you know, get up and share of what Hebrews, how Hebrews is impacted, I was sitting at the computer and I just immediately responded and said, man, I'd love to. Um, a couple of things that, that came to mind immediately was, uh, it might have been a couple months ago now, when Ben, as he read verse 14 of the reason that Jesus came was so that he could destroy the one who has power over, the de over death, and that is Satan, to destroy, to, to render powerless. Well, that next week, I, and I even emailed Ben a couple, back and forth a couple of times about that, and I was like, because even mentioned then, you know, Satan's still alive, but he's just not alive and well. And the picture that came to mind of, you know, the scripture saying that Satan is like a, a prowling lion, a roaring lion, prowling around looking for someone to devour. I thought, okay, well, how does that fit? Well, the picture that came to mind is this. A lion by nature will prowl. They're looking for something to destroy, kill, you know, eat. Um, powerful, muscular, large. And that's its nature. But if a lion is rendered powerless, <clears throat> his teeth are gone, his claws are gone, but he still prowls because that's his nature. He's still powerful, he's still muscular, but he's got no tools. And for me, that, that hit me in a very special way of, of thinking that you know, too often we, we make too much of our enemy, started to point up, we, we make too much of our enemy, not enough of our God. And that, that we really need to do that. Then this past week's sermon, I'd, I'd always known that Satan, that, that, that Jesus suffered, that suffering was a part of why he came. But that aspect, that facet of his suffering, of saying no to temptation, of suffering through temptation, and how that impacted me on a day-by-day -day basis was, okay, this is not just a one-time fast. This is not just a one-time saying no that, ooh, I conquered today but it's a lifestyle. And that was an incredible word from, from God. So, thank you. Unlike uh, Morris, this was something that uh, when I saw the email, I immediately refused. Um, I didn't jump to it and say, oh yeah, I'd love to. Um, standing in front of a body uh, is not easy for me. This is, for whatever reason, it's terrifying. Um, Kate and I and little Harper are on a new journey, um, and we've been asked to be obedient with going to a uh, one-income family and a stay-at-home mother. And a lot of a lot of these, you know, you families are, are kind of already operating that way. We have not in our five years of marriage, almost. Uh, uh, we, you know, we've not operated that way, and. Um, we started talking about this as this last school year came to an end. She teaches out at Rockwall, or used to, and she started feeling this conviction of, 
I really feel like this is what, you know, God's calling me to do, to be a stay-at-home mom. And immediately, even then, I was kind of resistant to it. I, I was like, you know, I, I don't know if I really feel that way. When in reality, I knew that's what, even growing up, my mom was a stay-at-home mother. I, I w- I'd love that. But my flesh started stepping in and saying, no, I like stuff. I, I want, you know, fake things. I want to be able to go where we want to go and do what we want to do. And that started trumping what we were being asked to do, and that was be obedient. And, um, you know, we started understanding that once this decision was made, which it was made towards the end of the year, um, you know, she's not teaching next year. She is going to be a stay-at-home mom. Well, then reality set in to where we were going to have to start making some big financial decisions. And it was stuff like um, car situation had to change and, and uh, house situation had to change. And I knew immediately, well, we're going to have to put the house in the market because we can't afford to live where we're living on one income, on, on what I bring in. And obviously, then I was immediately resistant to that. And I remember sitting at Starbucks with Scott and saying, you know, this is what we're going to have to do. And we really need to step out on faith and just trust God's plan. And we as a family pray for God's provision and pray that we'll trust him. And, you know, and when he provides, well, then I go, well, thank you for your provision, but I got it from here. And I started really struggling with knowing I had to do this. We had to move forward in making some very big decisions so that we could operate and we could be obedient in what he's calling us to do. And you know, I'd say stuff to Scott about it or some of you other guys in a small group, and yet I'd walk out of there, walk away from this conversation saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I ain't doing that. Nope. I've worked hard for this. This is my stuff. And it wasn't until, I guess, about three weeks ago where we started going through some of these passages. And my temptation was to, was to resist and be disobedient because it was stuff that I had worked for or it was stuff that was mine. I wanted to be in control. And thankfully, seeing those verses where God, where, where Jesus Christ, the great high priest, did not fail. Where I failed, he didn't. Being tempted, he, he did, he's without sin. He succeeded. And that gave me some immense hope, knowing what, am I, what do I have to be afraid of? He's already conquered everything. He's already won this. I don't have to battle with these this temptation, it is a battle every day, period. You know, it's, it's a daily battle. That flesh is always going to come back up and want what it wants. But thankfully, where I failed, he succeeded. Horace and Clint, appreciate those times of testimony. You know, there's a whole book in our Bible dedicated to what those guys just did. And uh, not dedicated, but that is a representation of what they did. The book of Psalms is really a book of encounters that worshipers, David, some, most of them, had with God, where it gave birth to words written on a page that were private, but they didn't stay private. They became public when they were shared in the corporate gatherings. So it's very appropriate for us to share testimony of what God has done and to share it publicly. And uh, something that we've been, something that I've been burdened about is that our corporate gatherings should be seasoned with more of that. And um, I get various emails over the course of the week uh, from time to time and um, 
Just a heads up, if you send me an email and share your worship of what God is doing in your life and what he's showing you, I might ask you to share it Sunday. So I don't want you to not email, I just want you to be attuned to that. And realize whatever may be in you that's keeping you from wanting to do something like that, realize it's not you're so small and you think, I don't wanna get in the way, I'm, I'm not worthy. Really, you're too big. I hate to break it to you, you're too big, and my prayer will be that you'll get smaller so that he can be glorified in you. Because when you're standing up, these guys were sharing these things, it wasn't making much of Chuck, Morris, or Clint. All three were making much of God. So it's a very different disposition. So that thing in you that might keep you from being willing to share something publicly in the future, just die, and we'll work hard at killing it. Okay? Give an occasion to kill it. So... Um, This morning, we are in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. As you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background, and then I'm going to pray, a little bit of perspective of where we are. We have been in verses 14 through 18 since, I think, March. I can't remember, actually, when we looked at it or when we started to look at it, but it's around March. And I actually, it's funny, the sermon that I'm preaching this morning, I began working on sermons weeks out. The sermon that we're, we're going to consider this morning, I actually had a date on my draft of April. <laughs> so all, you know, since March, what we thought were going to be maybe four sermon turned into a lot. So uh, it's pretty cool. This passage is verses 14 through 18 is just so thick and just chock full of some really amazing truths. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to read our passage And we're going to close out this little chapter or this little section and chapter two this morning corporately. God, I'm thankful for our time together this morning. I'm thankful for the seasoning that you've already given it. Thankful that we have stories that are being lived out right here, real stories with real lives, real decisions and real dilemmas and real occasions that are being that we're being equipped for week after week. And Lord, I love that we're not coming this morning as consumers. I love that we're not coming this morning figuring out, wanting to figure out how to fix our problems, but we're coming to just enjoy you and to consider what Christ has done, what you've done for us in Christ. And I love that you give us a new set of eyes for those decisions, those dilemmas, those triumphs and trials and everything in between. Lord, I pray this morning for, I pray you'll continue to do that, that we'll have a new set of eyes this week, and that we'll do this closure of this little section justice for your glory and for your name's sake. Christ's name we pray, amen. Does this thing need a battery? Is that why it's going in and out? Okay, y'all, if you, if you need to replace a battery, if it continues to do that, just do it seamlessly. I will play out like you're invisible, and so will they. Okay. Hebrews chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that being Christ, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Three purposes that are taught here in this passage. Three purposes for Christ taking on flesh. Here's the first, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That is a good thing to know that Christ's incarnation, his 
taking on flesh and blood and his dying, his work destroys the power of Satan. Apart from his work, Satan has grounds to accuse us. He's the accuser, biblically, and he has grounds to accuse you in the high court of heaven apart from someone else representing you in their righteousness. And through his incarnation, through his perfection, through his cross and his resurrection, that he has destroyed that power. That's why Paul uses the term frequently in our New Testaments. When a Christian dies, he or she is asleep in Christ. It's like he doesn't even want to use the terminology of death anymore because we won't feel the sting of it for those who are in Christ and united to him by faith. Secondly, in verse 15, second purpose of him taking on flesh and blood is to destroy all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, or to deliver, destroy, I'm sorry, to deliver, we don't want it to be destroyed, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You got to know that there is a severe fear that comes from knowing that you're going to meet your maker when you die. For those who are united to Christ by faith, we don't have to fear death. There's not a one of us that won't fear or doesn't likely fear the pain that we would imagine would be associated with death, however we might go someday. But we don't have to fear what happens next because Christ took on flesh, because he himself likewise partook of our flesh and blood, because he lived perfect, perfectly, died perfectly, bore our sins on the cross, and is resurrected. Verse 16, I'm going to read through. It's where we're going to camp this morning. We're going to come back to. I'm just going to read it right now. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And then here comes the third reason. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect with flesh and blood. So that, the third reason, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to bear the wrath that we are due, to absorb the wrath that we are due for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 16, I felt like in months ago, as kind of planning our journey through these verses, that verse 16 would be a nice way to end our journey. It's sort of the high watermark of the passage. If you look at how the passage is designed, it's sort of the peak. I'll read the passage again. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. He passed by angels and took on flesh to redeem those with flesh and blood through his death. If he were going to help angels, he would have taken on wings or something. Feathers. I don't know what angels have. Some shiny appearance. But he passed by angels and he took on flesh and blood. And in fact, 1 Peter tells us that angels covet what we have. Angels long to look into the things that we can see. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can't imagine that they wouldn't long to experience what we can experience in Christ and that we have a Redeemer. Angels don't have a Redeemer. We have one, though. He took on our flesh. He took on our blood. He became like his brothers, his human brothers. That's not talking just the faithful brothers. That's talking Jerry Sandusky brothers. 
He took on the same flesh that, yes, Jerry Sandusky and anybody else you can insert in there is made of. He did that for us, not for angels. This word here in this passage, helps, is the same word that's used elsewhere in the book. Just listen to this passage. You don't need to turn there. You may jot it down. In chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, speaking of the the Israel that's led out of Egypt, not like the covenant I made with those guys on the day when I took them by the hand. That's the same word that's used here in chapter 2 for help. On the day that I helped them, you could insert, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There's a couple things we can consider there. We can enjoy that he takes us by the hand. He holds us. He takes hold of us. He didn't take hold of angels. He takes hold of us as human brothers. It's the first thing, and we can also consider the continuity in the story. The Hebrews preacher uses the same language of the Exodus for what Christ has done for us. He is our Yeshua. He is our salvation that parted the waters of the Red Sea. He is our salvation that's led off into the wilderness to bear the sins of the people. He didn't take hold of angels, but he passed by their shininess, maybe, for our shabbiness. Man, the marvel of it. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. What I want to do in these next few minutes is just an appropriate closure to the time that we've spent in these five verses. I want us to sort of look at a photo album of our journey. We're going to look at six things. I'm holding up five, about to say six. We're going to look at six things that are true of Christ's incarnation that wouldn't be true had he not taken on flesh. Okay, we're going to be moving quickly. Here's the first one. What if he hadn't taken on flesh? If he hadn't taken on flesh, he couldn't be our obedient representative. He couldn't have been our obedient representative. He couldn't have been a new and better Adam had he not become like Adam. Had he not become like us in every respect bearing the very same flesh and blood. He had to experience real temptation in order to experience real victory. One of the things we've done in these last few months is we've considered the temptation scenario, the temptation settings. We've read from the Matthew version. We've never read from the Luke version, so I think it would be appropriate for us to read from this. If you'd like to turn there, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. That's the southern, that's Greenville version. He was legitimately flesh and blood, like us in every respect, hungry. The devil said to him, unlike, let me tell you, let me just remind you, Adam and Eve weren't hungry. 
Adam and Eve were surrounded by every tree full of fruit and everything, vegetable, whatever they wanted to eat. They weren't hungry. Contrast our Savior, who was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You've got to know that these are real legitimate temptations. He was legitimately hungry. And he is legitimately due the rule and reign of every nation and every kingdom. But the temptation here is to get that crown without that cross. And the third, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. These are real temptations in order for him to experience real victory. Secondly, if he hadn't taken on flesh, he couldn't have restored and redeemed our dominion. You may not realize this if you were here when we considered the dominion issues for the first time as a church, as we're moving here in Hebrews, we realize that humankind was given dominion over all creation in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That's the command. Take dominion. That's a long way of saying, take dominion of this thing that I've just created and placed you in. The only problem is, instead of subduing that earth, turns out Adam and Eve were subdued by it. And then in case things weren't bad enough, God recreates the earth. He preserves a little remnant, a little elect remnant on a piece of wood called the ark. He recasts the cultural mandate after the flood, after the waters subside, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. And that humanity proved to be no different. We have damaged dominion from the outset. And the problem is we can't fix it. I love what Athanasius said. If you remember a few months ago or a few weeks ago, we considered this quote. It's just so good. Athanasius was the guy that wrote the book On the Incarnation to young Macarius, his disciple. He says, you cannot put straight in others what's warped in yourself. It's bad news for us, apart from someone else who can put straight what is crooked in us. So it took someone outside of us to become one of us to straighten what we couldn't. Man. Hebrews chapter 2, listen to this passage. Verses 9 and 10, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, made like us in every respect, wearing our same flesh and blood, 
namely Jesus, we see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We see him seated and ruling and reigning now because he redeemed and restored dominion. And for those who are in him, we now have a new cultural mandate. It's not be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It's a different version of the same type of command. And it goes like this. Coming from the one who's seated and reigning and ruling and restored our dominion, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I earned it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have a new mandate. That's ours. He couldn't have done this had he not taken on flesh. Third, if he hadn't taken on flesh, he couldn't be our mediator. The book of Job is such a blessing and has been a blessing to many people over the years. You know the story, or likely you know the story. If you don't, I encourage you to read it. Just summarize it as this. Job lost everything but his delightful wife at God's permission. And listen to what happens in chapter 9 of Job. Job says, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. This this guy's in the pit of despair. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, it's positive thinking. Okay, that's, that's what he's saying. This is an old-fashioned version of it. If I just put on, okay, you're going to have these things. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. Now he's speaking of the nature of God. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. And listen to what he says. This is a heartbreaking reality that Job reckoned with that is not our situation. He says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. If only there was someone that could straddle the chasm between me and this God. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. What Job longed for, we have someone to straddle that chasm. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says there is one God, there's one mediator, we could say arbiter, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's what we walk in. All that happened because 100% God showed up 
as 100% man. He straddled the chasm as fully God and fully man. Fourth, if he hadn't taken on flesh, he couldn't have shown us how to live. He could have told us, and in fact, he did at Sinai. But he couldn't have shown us how to live. This next one speaks to exactly what Chuck was sharing a few minutes ago. Listen to this passage from 1 John. You may jot it down. I'm already there, so I'm going to read it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is speaking to the reality of Christ as our model. There are plenty of other passages that deal with this as well. Here's another one, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's another one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Had Christ not shown up in the flesh, he could not have shown us how to live. I want to tell you right now, in Reformed contexts, this is, I fear, often underdeveloped. We don't want to err on the side of somehow communicating some sort of works-based salvation so we never deal with living a holy life, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we can easily live in the place where I'm forgiven. Grace, it's all over me, man. How dare you speak to me about how I should live in a manner worthy of the gospel? I'm swimming in grace. When this is underdeveloped, it makes a monster a grace monster. On the flip side, it can easily be overdeveloped. Just as easy as it is for a church to leave it underdeveloped, that Christ is our model, we can sure overdo it. And all you hear week after week is be like Christ, be like Christ, be like Christ. And if you're like me, I've already messed up before 9 a.m. Every day. I'm like, man, maybe this next sermon will take because the last 800 didn't. That's a hopeless life right there. When you underdo him as model, it makes a grace monster. When you overdo him as model, you're doomed before breakfast. Man, observing what he did is cool. That is model. Now, enjoying what he did, that makes him means. When you observe what he did, you're like, I'm going to be like Jesus today. You should be. 
Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk like he walked. But know not if you fail, but when you fail, that you are bathed in his righteousness. You are clothed in his alien righteousness. And your salvation will never be dependent on your performance. Amen? Man, they go together. He shows us how to live, and because we are saved and have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, we are able to walk as he walked, and we should. Next, if he hadn't taken on flesh, he couldn't have been first fruits for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks to this. If you'd like to turn there, you can. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ as second, third, fourth, fifth, twentieth fruits. This is language, this dealing with Christ as the first basketful of the harvest. And we are the second, third, fifth, umpteenth basketful. It's dealt with later in the chapter in verse 49 as well. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's a spoiled image, spoiled fruit, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He is the pattern for our resurrection bodies, and he's the first basket full of fruit. He couldn't have done this had he not been flesh. Christ's own teaching, a grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die, here cross, in order for it to give life and bear fruit. He's the first basket full, and he couldn't have done it unless he'd been flesh. And lastly, if he hadn't taken on flesh, he couldn't have been our substitute sacrifice. If he hadn't taken on real legitimate flesh, he couldn't have been our substitute sacrifice. Hear this. He died for us, and he died for us. He died for us, and he died for us. He died in our stead. He died in our place. He had to be made dieable in order to do that. He had to be made of the same stuff. I'm saying this again because it's such a teachable opportunity. He had to be made of the same stuff that Jerry Sandusky's made of. Since contemporary news right in front of us right now, let me just say this. The blood of Jesus is able and sufficient to forgive even yet even those sins if he seeks forgiveness in Christ. That's the scandal of our gospel. Side note. But he had to be made diable to be a real substitute. He had to have real legs to carry our very real sin outside the camp. He couldn't have done this on a cloud. He couldn't have done this figuratively. He had to have real feet and real hands to bear the real wrath that we were due on the tree. 
share this one passage that so nicely summarizes each of these six things. You may study this passage this week and just break down all the riches of this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. And then I'm going to share three testimonies with you vicariously. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself? He himself, that, or in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Three testimonies to share with you, and then we're going to continue on with our Lord's Supper. And these testimonies I'm sharing vicariously on behalf of three people, who two of which are out of town and one is serving in the nursery, and they've asked me to share this. In fact, I asked if I could share these things. First is from Aaron Adele. These are email versions. I enjoyed the thought yesterday of how much weight just three small words can carry. As a person who tends to be way too wordy, it was a good lesson for me to try and say more with fewer words. We are, for those of you who know Aaron, you can say amen. There were several little three-word kabooms in the scriptures from the sermon. <laughs> That's good. I wrote these really big in my journal. Once for all. How much more? For all time, it is finished. Remember no more. Let's draw near. Let's hold fast and stir one another. Greatness. Second is from Marie Webb. She writes, I'm breathless envisioning the goat laden down with sin, led away into the wilderness. How can one not be? To know that Christ, who took on a mortal body, perfect and blameless in every way, to know that before I came into being, before he breathed me into existence, when as yet he had seen my unformed frame, but knowing every sin I was yet to commit, that he had made a way for me to be reconciled to himself, I'm more than breathless. At times I sit and marvel at the sovereignty of our Lord, how he has dominion and power over all things. I look into the small time in my own life and can only stand in awe of it. He has immense power, he who breathed me out, who blessed me with a husband perfectly designed for me, he who hardened my husband's heart and caused me to leave or caused 
him to leave the table of faith. He who blessed me with bearing and loving four beautiful children, he who took away one of them. He who has called my oldest child to himself at an early age, answered prayer. He who held me up and would not let me go, though I unfaithful and yearning to depart from his presence, who can withstand his will? He who set the stars and times, who created all for his glory, to give all creation a correct view of God, a high calling indeed, one that I do poorly. I've often looked on my children as being spiritually handicapped, having only one believer in the home, that believer being me. A poor excuse for a believer by all accounts. And in my anguish at that, still I hear his whisper, my grace is sufficient. My heart and mind and soul have been a battlefield, it seems, at times rung with holes I doubt can ever be filled, and yet he calls me out, leads, drags, a stubborn wretch as I. Somehow where festered wound and healing scab meet, there he is, pouring into me his spirit, his truth, and his love. Where there is temptation to look at my circumstances and be discouraged for the mess it is, he shows me something else, opportunity. Opportunity to worship out loud and still proclaim who he is, who he truly is. He's taken me into the holy of holies. No longer am I separated but accounted righteous. Justified by faith, he's made a way once for all. To know that I am included in that all is ridiculously scandalous. She asked me to add in a follow-up email. I would like to add, though, that I am still confident and pray at all times for the return of Jeremy's faith. I don't understand why the Lord did it, but I'm hoping he somehow someday brings him back to himself. With all my heart, I hope for this. And I also feel the Lord's protection over our marriage. He has sanctified Jeremy in some ways because of me, I think. Jeremy's set apart and lives in relative peace because the Lord continues to bless us so richly in our relationship and home life. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's from Marie Webb. The last one here is from Kyle Louder. If you know Kyle, you'll appreciate this. He says, Ben, I wrote this out as prose, but it seems easier to read if I break it up a bit like poetry. For those of you who know Kyle, you know exactly what, what we're talking about here. Not trying to be artsy. You, Kyle doesn't have to try. Just trying to make it a little easier to understand. Let me know what you think. How exciting and how troubling. The Son of God's sovereign, creative voice is humbled to wear the skin of his creation. One of three becomes one of trillions. He who numbers the leaves struggles to shape wood with tool, and he born amidst the muck of livestock commands the dead to live. The greatest serves the least. He teaches of the best power found in faith of meek children. He who heals the creation we sacrifice daily to the twin idols of religion and power. I see what seems to be paradox, ideas so blatantly exposed, opposed, and I wonder... In what way do we misunderstand sovereignty and humanity, suffering 
and creation. How is it that our minds and language are so incapable of reconciling our full God and full human? I'm so excited to see where this journey leads. It's an appropriate way to end our morning and our time in this sweet passage. Let me pray. God, you are so good to us. Aside from giving us glimpses this morning into other people's journeys and making much of yourself through that, just the reality that we have a shared journey is a marvel. Considering our destitute situation, hopeless situation, considering our dominion well lost, how you restored that, redeemed that in the person and work of Christ, and how we, by united to him by faith, get to walk in that victory. Lord, I pray it will fuel worship in a people. I pray that it will fuel fathers and husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and to teach and train and raise up their children in the Lord. I pray it will fuel wives and mothers to worship as they follow frail, feeble dudes. And as they tend to the little gardens, frustrating little gardens at times of little hearts, that they're fueled by worship. I pray for young people as they're moving into the age of being able to make decisions on their own and being out on their own, that they'll, they too will be fueled by worship, by marvel and wonder that you sent your son and that he made a way for us to approach the throne boldly. And Lord, I pray for kids. I pray that kids can honor and respect and obey their parents as an act of worship because of the marvel of Jesus who took on flesh and was raised in the home of frail, feeble human parents and submitted to them. I pray that those realities will fuel each of us in our different capacities. I pray they'll fuel us in the workplace in the cubicle, on the job site, in the warehouse. I pray they'll fuel us in our front yard, in our backyard, in our neighborhoods to be a salty, bright, aromatic people for your glory. Lord, guard our hearts from ever going through the motions. Guard our hearts from getting our church on and getting our check in the block. We have had such a sweet time in this passage thankful for the victory that we walk in in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.